because of what Australia is, it's old and dry. It's a place of extremes and that old saying, droughts or flooding rains. We have an old culture that understands this old, dry place, but we don't really have a say in its management. We're not even not even at the table. We're barely in the room. We're way, we're way down the street, actually. My name's Brad Mogridge. I'm currently a PhD candidate at the University of Canberra and a Camilleroy man from northwest New South Wales. The PhD, I started about two years ago, and well, my question is, how can Indigenous knowledge make water management better in Australia? Indigenous participation or engagement is not in the terms of reference, so we're not included up front in these big national studies from an environmental point of view or a water point of view or a climate change point of view. It's just not a part of the way we manage the Australian landscape. If you had land, you got water back in the day. And unfortunately for a lot of our old people, we were controlled. Every movement was controlled. And whether we were classed as humans, could have been classed as flora and fauna because not until the late 60s were Aboriginal people of Australia counted as humans. When all the land and water was given away, our people were not part of that. When we became human um, or counted as humans in the late 60s, all the good land and all the good water was given away. So as Aboriginal people started moving off missions and reserves and looking at ways to be part of the Australian society that left them out for so many years, we didn't have an opportunity. So land and water was given away and environmental issues such as the death of the the Darling River and it had a a thousand kilometre blue-green algal bloom, toxic to animals and also, you know, it can make you pretty sick as a human. They had a reform process and they brought in a a cap for the Murray-Darling Basin and, you know, still Aboriginal people weren't part of this management structure. And when they reformed water, what they actually did was separate land and water. So they became two entities. And so, yeah, land, it, it is um, a commodity and it's bought and sold and leased. And so water became a commodity that you could actually buy and sell on a market. And I suppose... For Aboriginal people, we may have got land through, say, land rights acts or access to land through native title or actually just purchased land as individuals. And so if we Aboriginal people wanted water, they actually got to go now to the market and buy it. And when when you're in dry times, because it's market-driven, it's very, very expensive. A lot of the, the stories and the songs is about connection to land and water. The Dreamtime stories, the song lines that link, they're all linked via water in this Australian landscape. So when they separated land and water through with the market-based provisions, you know, a lot of our elders just don't get it. Why would you separate land and water? 
every human has the right to access clean water and that's not the case in in some of our remote communities but also in some parts of australia you know there's a some toxicants out there that are starting to find themselves in the environment land and water was taken away from us and we should have a better say in how it's managed this is think sustainability i'm jake morkham This is part three of a series exploring the classism of the environmental movement. Today's episode is green colonialism. As climate change threatens the fabric of the Australian landscape, it's clearer now than ever before that 230 years of doing it the white man's way is what put us here in the first place. The expulsion of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples from determining what happens to their land and water shrouds Western environmentalism in a murky light. Governments, environmental NGOs and climate research, in many cases, continue to exclude Indigenous peoples from the climate conversation. This exclusion, Brad Mogridge believes, stems from the idea that Western science is the only science and the only answer to our environmental crisis. The academies and Western science doesn't see an Indigenous knowledge as a science because that's it was never taught that way in the curricula. And I always point out that our old people, generations and generations way before Western science was even thought about. We're doing science. Our old people, they had methodologies, which was whether that was their law or their way of being, their songs, their dreamtime stories. They tested the environment. They retested the environment. They had results. And ultimately, those results is survival. Um, But unfortunately, Western science really finds it hard to accept it because there's no reference point. You know, there's no, no one I can't reference 10 generations ago of my, my old people talking about their water place and, you know, where water flows, where it doesn't, when it comes, you know, the indicators, uh, what water you can drink, what water you can't drink. And that's the bit, you know, that used to, I suppose, make me wild is that they don't have to include it. There's no sort of requirement for them to actually make a project consider Indigenous knowledge. With no legal obligation to recognise traditional ecological knowledge in land and water management, Western-centric science leads to Western-centric decision-making, where these processes are only further enforced when those making the decisions aren't Indigenous themselves. So when, like, an ecological management plan is written... It's written from the Western white perspective and there might be a small section that talks about Aboriginal culture as culture, whereas science and Western bureaucracy is cultural as well. This is Tanya Searle, a PhD candidate from Flinders University. I'm a first-generation white Australian. Part of my research, I'm interested in how white or non-Indigenous people manage their whiteness And how do we behave when working in partnership with Aboriginal people? In 2015, 
Tanya's research brought her to the Department of Environment, Water and Natural Resources in South Australia, where she interviewed six officers in the Aboriginal Partnerships Program. Their role is to work in partnership with Indigenous landholders on issues such as feral species, bush regeneration and the management of national parks. Five of them identified as white, one identified as being both Polynesian and European descent, and there were also five men and one woman. The point of the research, Tanya says, was to not only highlight how many white people there are in the South Australian government, but to unveil a resistance to the very notion of whiteness, and a denial that being white would have anything to do with how they make their decisions. What did they make of the term whiteness? Ooh, (laughs) that's an interesting one. These people were happy to speak to me, but there were other people that um, were put off by the term whiteness. Why? Why? Because they found it confronting The people that I spoke to reported to me about, oh, there were other people that would have liked to have been there, but they were, you know, didn't really like the term whiteness. And maybe if you toned that down a little bit, you know, you'd be able to start a conversation and ease into it a little bit more softly. Did they see the term whiteness as an affront to them? Whiteness has a number of kind of inbuilt reflexes to protect white privilege. Things like denial or guilt. People can get paralysed with guilt. White fragility, um, especially because white people often think of themselves as good people and anti-racist. As a society, we don't subscribe to race hatred anymore. But the habits that we've inherited from colonialism remain. And so there's a struggle with acknowledging that we're a group of people who are descendants from quite an ugly history. And we don't like to be associated with whiteness because it brings to mind white supremacy. And also white People aren't used to being racialized. We're not used to seeing ourselves as a cultural group of white people. We like to think of ourselves as individuals, and quite often we think of ourselves as well-meaning individuals with good intentions. And that's part of whiteness too, is that we see, and I'm speaking as a white person, so we see ourselves as normal, and other people are different, and other people have a culture. Did they comprehend exactly what you're saying? Most of them could see it, and that's why they were willing to speak to me. But whiteness has, it's complex, and there's um, lots of characteristics. They were very conscious of systemic issues. They could all really see that they were in privileged positions, um, and they got paid for their work. A lot of the Aboriginal people that they work in partnership volunteer So they might be sitting on the board of a natural resource management body or they might be the chairperson or the representative of an Aboriginal organisation. They do that in their spare time. But it was harder for them to see whiteness within themselves. 
sometimes they kind of say, there's no other way for me to do my job. This is the way the system is. Um, and there's almost a resignation to it. There was another discussion around project management. So when they're running a project, so like a conservation project, the Western frameworks and the project management is very compartmentalised. The jobs are ticked off in a certain order. There's funding cycles, reporting outcomes that they need to meet. It's part of that Western bureaucracy. And they can't see any other way. They're supposed to be working in partnership with Aboriginal people, but it's not always a partnership. We've inherited a, a way of thinking that we're at the top of this hierarchy. So when there's a problem between different groups of people, the whiteness gaze will look at the other person or the other group of people as having the problem because they're inferior. But Australia is built upon the denial of Indigenous sovereignty and this hasn't been resolved in Australia. You hear people say all the time, I didn't do it, so I'm not responsible, but our forebearers did it. I inherit the roads that pave song lines and dreaming tracks. I inherit the systems. I inherit the hospitals, the schools. I inherit everything <laughs> that has been built upon the denial of Indigenous sovereignty and the occupation of this land. So in the same way that I inherit the benefits, I also need to inherit the responsibility. Because governments continue to base their decisions off of Western science and because government departments continue to be majoritively run and populated with white people, is the environmental movement in Australia innately racist? Oh, I wouldn't say that. That's probably a bit harsh. But, you know, it's, it's hard for a lot of our mobs, you know, that potentially are in remote places and are under-resourced. And, you know, in some parts of Australia, English might be the fifth language. Challenging the system is really hard. There are some NGOs out there that will use Indigenous people for their own benefit, and that, that's sad if they do that. Um, and there's some groups out there that will do it for dual benefit, and I suppose that's the most rewarding aspect if it, you know, there is partnerships out there and everyone is an equal partner, not as a, a lesser partner. Can traditional ecological knowledge and Western science work together? Well, that's my next fight. I do also have a part-time role with Threatened Species, and there's some fantastic partnerships between Western science, researchers, universities and the like, partnering with traditional owner groups on country and also the Indigenous rangers out there that are working to care for and bring back Threatened Species. So it's using traditional knowledge, but also Western science for the best outcome for those threatened species. While Brad has hope the two can work together, he says without any form of Indigenous science network, it's near impossible to know 
what other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander scientists are doing, let alone know who's out there. We don't know how many Indigenous scientists are out there that are actively participating or engaging in the science space, but also in the Indigenous space. What does a strong network in this space look like to you? Oh, well, it has to be Indigenous-led. So we'll have Indigenous people as part of the leadership, coordinating it, being the voice, but having support networks of Western scientists. Whether we have non-Indigenous mentors in this space to help Indigenous scientists, but also we need Indigenous scientists mentoring our own mob as well. So whether that's a collective, you know, you'll have a Western scientist, say an elder from your community and yourself working together as a support network to build future scientists. None of that was sort of around when I was doing my science thing. We don't have the mentors and the leaders in this space. I know a collective of Indigenous scientists in, you know, physical or the environment space or botany, but there's usually only one or two, you know, when it comes to, say, hydrogeology, I know there's three of us. That's it. Three Indigenous hydrogeologists. That's my network. (laughs) Another two. So there might be more, but we just don't know. Which Brad worries is sending the wrong message to the next generation. Yeah, look, I didn't think I could do science. You know, I was told that I'd never be good at science or maths. And You know, I I thought, no, bugger that, I'm going to have a crack because I enjoy science and, you know, I seem to do well and okay in maths and that spurred me on. But other people, it could be a detriment and they will just close that door and walk away from the opportunity in science. But what we're teaching as well, the curricula, doesn't appeal to Indigenous people. You know, there's no connections. Until we start building our stuff into the curricula as well, We want to see more Indigenous stories and dream times, you know, like the local Indigenous language at a school. Why isn't that taught? Indigenous studies is an elective, whereas the history of Australia, as from a white point of view, is core. That's the table we've got to turn. How do we, in the process of intertwining Western science and this knowledge, ensure that it's protected? That's something that, you know, a lot of our mobs have been burnt by in the past. So they will be hesitant straight up because they've seen it happen before that, you know, potentially someone comes in and might have a knowledge about a plant species that has a certain benefit for health or disease, potentially a pharmaceutical company might catch on to that, patent it, that knowledge is gone. They make the money, but the traditional owner doesn't. Should traditional knowledge partner with Western science, there are protocols to follow. If that process is upfront and respectful and culturally appropriate, there are ways of doing it. You've got to follow Aboriginal people's protocols for once. What are their challenges and questions they want answered? And I suppose if if you go down that path of building that relationship, you know, you start early, you start up front, you start building in these contractual agreements around how you will protect their knowledge. And, you, you know, these researchers need to understand 
of what they can share and what they can't share. And so the mobs need to be upfront about that. While these protocols are recognised, Natalie Stoenoff, director of the Intellectual Property Program at the University of Technology, Sydney, explains they aren't legally binding. Protocols need to have force of law for them to be mandatory. And whilst people will acknowledge and deal with a protocol appropriately, there's no compulsion to do so unless it is under legislation which says you must follow this protocol. And if you don't, these are the consequences. It's fine to have these protocols in place, but where's the obligation to follow them? Meaning under federal law, there's no way to ensure that communities who own knowledge have ongoing ownership, where Brad Mogridge argues that this should be step number one. It must be in agreements that the Aboriginal people that hold that knowledge will always own that knowledge so that in the future, the mob will always own, you know, there'll be a a next generation that will own that knowledge. Sadly, we're losing a lot of these stories with, you know, a generation going to the grave. We've lost a lot already. You know, even my old people have, have passed on without passing on that knowledge. There are some gaps out there, but there's still an excellent amount of knowledge that we can access. And a treaty, is that a way forward? Potentially, yes. Brad points out Australia is the only Commonwealth country in the world that still has no treaty with Indigenous peoples. Victoria is talking treaty. You know, they've got legislation that gave the state to start negotiating treaties. So that's a huge step. You know, they're now starting the conversation about what a treaty would look like. That's a path that'll be, you know, we'll be watching closely. And But it needs the right government. And the treaty should be negotiated locally, not at a national level. The Maori, they all have a, a similar language that they talk. It's in schools, it's everywhere you go. Whereas in Australia... Indigenous people in Australia are just seen as Indigenous people, but, you know, there's 250-plus nations that existed pre-settlement. So we've got such diversity, Indigenous language, and we're not all the same. We don't have a, an Indigenous advisory group. We don't have... A body. We don't have a, a think tank or a national Indigenous water strategy. If I keep saying this, someone's going to pick up on it one day and, you know, we might get there. But again, it has to be Indigenous-led. Indigenous people putting down their strategies and their, their aspirations. We've got to uh, make sure that we're at a table um, and that table will be supported with credible evidence and, you know, new science. Indigenous science informing policy and then once you can inform policy, you can inform legislation and and away we go. We save the world. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology, Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in the 2SER studios in Sydney. 
which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Think Sustainability. And we also have a website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. Thanks for your company.